hello again. My name is Jeff Watson, and you are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. What a hoot this has been so far. My goodness. Got about five of these things uh, done, and it has just been fantastic. I get to pick the brains of creatives and talk about the birth of art and what it means for them to create and the pains and agony of it and the joy and the meaning behind it. And I get to have really dorky jokes about Stanley Kubrick and all just kinds of things. It's fantastic. Put together by my good friend, Michael Simpson, who has been uh, around the block for quite some time, been helping me get these uh, very wide berth of interviews. So speaking of which, this next one, Coming up, oh my God, fantastic, was with a gentleman by the name of Paul Hirsch, and he wrote this unbelievable book called A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away, because guess what? He edited Star Wars, and Empire Strikes Back, and Carrie, and Plane Chase and Automobiles, and Mission Impossible, and, 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 and. So, a uh, legendary editor that I got a chance to talk to. And it was really fun because I know a lot about movies. I know a lot about genres. I don't know much about editing. It was always this, like, forgotten stepchild for me. Um, it's this mysterious process. And it's still mysterious to me. But there's so much power in what editors can do and uh, how they can shape film and how they can shape tone and improve an actor's performance, all with the director's approval. And But it's just a really creative process that uh, it was a pleasure to speak to this fine gentleman. And without any further ado, I am done rambling, and off we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome again. I have with me the fabulous editor of a billion movies that you've loved, and... Uh, have seen and just these incredibly influential films uh, throughout his time. The book is called once again, a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. And it is done by Paul Hirsch, who is uh, on the podcast now. Hello, Paul. Care to say hi? Hello. So Paul, the whole book that you've done is just fascinating and is really great in covering uh, your career. Thank you. But there was, yeah, and there were some things that really stuck out to me, um, and specifically to kind of kick this off was in the beginning, you described the editing process as a series of hats or a series of disciplines, um, sculpting, uh, part of it's being uh, working with architecture, part of it is choreography, part of it is writing. And there was another hat that I actually thought of, and I wanted to see what you thought of this is being an archaeologist because I, there's this there's so many great points where there's film strips and you have to kind of dig through and create something out of it and i just wanted to see if archaeology was kind of in that possible world for you well jeff you've committed one of the sins of the interviewer which is to pose a question to me that i have to think about so, <laughs> my apologies I don't have a ready answer for, I never thought about archaeology as uh, an art. I always thought of it more as a science. Um, those various arts you were describing um, were 
given as an example of other arts which are similar to editing but are not editing. You know, editing is the <coughs> excuse me is the only uh, aspect of filmmaking that is native to film. I mean, the cinematography has its roots in photography, and before photography, there was painting, which you know it involved composition and lighting and shading and and uh you know and then there's um stagecrafts of course acting and set design and and costume design and makeup and you know, all these things that go into making a film music all these things existed before film the only thing that didn't exist before film was film editing and um one of the things i've been pondering about recently is the question of whether uh editing is a discovery or an invention you know is it something that we've created or is it something that we discovered about ourselves that we didn't know before and i'm sort of leaning toward the latter i i think that the the technology of film that enabled us to capture motion and then put these images in sequence to tell a story revealed something about our brains that we hadn't known before because we were never exposed to that before. So um, it's an invention that led to a discovery um, about ourselves. Interesting. Yeah, you you mentioned also, and I think this ties into this, um, you had mentioned that it's that editing is a, it's like a reconstruction of time. Yeah, yeah it's all about timing. Um, and, and it has a very, you know, direct, connection to music because of that music and film are the only uh arts that involve uh timing dance of course is connected to music so in that sense it also is but uh you know the the plastic arts like uh architecture and and painting and sculpture which involved molding elements molding physical elements into something um don't involve time. They capture a mm -hmm. moment, perhaps, but then they make that moment go, you know, it, it's frozen in time uh, eternally. So time is not a an element in the viewer's experience, whereas in music and in film, it very much is. And uh, it's the, the editor's job, partly, is to be conscious of the pace at which the story elements and the you know the drama is being delivered to the audience. Sure, and I'm a musician and uh, have written songs myself, and that that resonated with me when I read that in the book as well. Um, I had never thought about it as kind of a reconstruction of time and being able to edit parts in, which I do all the time. You know, I'll write a bridge and throw it out, or I'll add something in here. Um, and I'd never thought about it that way before, so I thought that was really fascinating. Uh -huh. Well, I, I, you know, I spent my career editing feature films, which are basically two-hour stories, you know, from an hour and a half to two and a half hours, something like that. And mm -hmm. um, so the the analogy in time, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, the analogy in music is more closely to uh, symphonic work that involves long periods of time. And um, how time is structured, uh, how music is structured is related to my understanding of how movies should work. You know, that 
uh, you don't go at the same pace the whole time. When I studied music as a, a student, a young person in high school, I went to the High School of Music and Art, which is a specialized school in New York City. It's a public school, and you have to take an audition in order to get in. The art huh. students had to present a portfolio of their work in order to get in. So you have to be, um, you have to qualify to get in. And I, I barely qualified as a drummer, um, <laughs> but that I do have a you know a keen sense of time, and um, I tell people that I learned more about editing film from Beethoven than from anyone else. Wow! I remember, Can you? I remember, yeah. Well, you know the way he structures time and how you don't go. Uh, you don't go fast from beginning to end. There are times when you slow down. I remember being told in orchestra, they would say, when it says in the in the score, uh, accelerando, which means to speed up, what do you do? You play slower, so you have some place to start from. If it says diminuendo, which means play softer, that means you play loud, so you have some place to go. So it's huh. all about understanding where you want to be at a certain point and preparing for it. And all those uh, aspects of shaping time and the and the listener or the audience's perception of it uh, is very much part of what I do or did. I'm retired now. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's that like I mentioned, the music part of your book really really did connect with me um, because for me, some of the greatest moments in film have been a tie to music. Um, and and you actually mentioned in the book, I thought this was also really great, was that like when you're putting together a first cut, you say, I go into a sort of trance, an alpha state or flow in which there is no awareness of time passing and I'm completely absorbed in the right. task at hand. Yeah, I'd have to say that I, I sat down to work and 40 years went by, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, I understand it's very, that. It's very absorbing work and... Uh, it's true. You're, you know, they always say, "Be here now." Well, when you're editing, you can only be here now. You can't be thinking about the past or the future. You have to right. be reacting to the moment that you're in. Um, so uh, it's been, a, you know, it was a perfect career for me. I, I found it uh, very gratifying. Yeah, it, I, I find that when I create, it, it's the same. I think concept. I always call it that. That music for me is a ladder to God. It just just in that you know sense of being present, present in the moment, almost a Buddhist Zen kind of thing, um, in that kind of flow. In terms of music, um, I do I read and I loved that in let's say Carrie, uh, yes. for example, um, the uh, the idea or the fact rather that when you were putting together the famous end sequence yes. where the hand comes up and the music that was behind that. If I'm not mistaken, I think that was your call. Is that correct? Or? Well, it often, you know, I'm often the first person to introduce music into the film because, um, I do that before I show it to the director. So, you know, I want my work to be effective and to really truly be effective. There are scenes that require music and I have to put something in. So, uh, it's often a choice that I make, that needs to be endorsed or rejected by the director. The director has the power to make decisions. I can only make suggestions. But, you know, the pleasure for me is when the suggestions I make are adopted. So uh, that's sort of the, the game I play, is to make it so good that they don't want to change it, you know? Right. And 
that dovetails, and I'm going to bounce around here, but I got to get my my fanboy question out of the way here. Um, as I think I may have mentioned in our early uh, earlier correspondence, one of my favorite editing scenes since I was I guess 15 was the museum piece uh, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, thank you. And, well, yeah, it's brilliant. Well, thanks. I had chosen a different piece of music originally. Uh, I think it was uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's version of Pictures at an Exhibition. Oh, wow. And as I recall, it was a solo acoustic guitar, and it was played with a lot of, uh, pa- not pauses, but stretching time. That, you know, it would slow down and speed up and then slow down again. And I cut the images, which were all basically all static, sure. um, to to the music, and then uh, John Hughes, brilliant genius, uh, but kind of mercurial personality, uh, <laughs> loved loved the music for a month, and then and then he hated it. <laughs> so he would he he would do this. He would, you know he would he 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 saw Ferris. He said, "I love all your choices of music. They're fantastic." And then. By the end, he'd thrown half of them out because he couldn't stand them anymore. So uh, the music that we finally used in the museum sequence was played at a more regular pace. So I had to adjust the cuts to the more regular pace of the music. And I thought the scene became a little less idiosyncratic and a little bit less interesting. However, I do think his instinct about the music was correct because the piece that's in there is... Oh, just the right tone for for the for the scene. Just magical. And as as a fifteen year old uh, goth kid, um, I was a giant Smiths fan, still am, and also Dream Academy fan. So it's just right in the crosshairs for me. Uh-huh. Um, but it's not just about the music. And this is really what I, ultimately what I wanted to ask you about the specific topic was uh-huh. it, the great thing about it is it's not cut to the beat. Yeah. And I love well, it when I see that. Well, well, I think it is, in a sense, cut to the beat. But, you know, I, I've always, uh, since you're a musician, you'll understand, I don't like to cut on the downbeat. I like to cut uh, just before the downbeat. I noticed. So I noticed. Um, I find it's more elegant. You know, if you, if you have the music, when uh, cutting musical sequences, I like to have the music animate the action as opposed to animate the cuts. Hmm. So that you, you cut so that the it's the action that's, you know, the music is working on as opposed to the the, the splice. I mean, sometimes sure. it's inevitable you, you want to cut on the, on the loud bang, you know. Uh, yeah. But usually I tend to avoid that if I can. Yeah, I I really and you know the thing, you mentioned that in the book too, kind of about playing behind the beat, and it reminded me of how Willie Nelson sings, or Billie Holiday sings. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, it was like you're you're kind of playing with the beat, you're playing with time, and essentially, yeah. um, that's what's so great about those singers is it's just they're not on the beat and they're they kind of play around with it a lot, and that's what I really found in in a lot of your work. I try to stay ahead of the beat as opposed to behind it, like Billie, you know. Right, exactly. You're you're kind of kind of playing with it all. Um, so another thing I kind of wanted to, wanted to bring up was I thought it was really interesting that you have 
these kind of long-term relationships uh, with directors, you know, uh, yeah. De Palma, Hughes, and there were so many directors that you uh, kind of stuck with. And um, I'm curious, it, it seemed like from the book, especially with De Palma, when you kind of switched over to Lucas, that you just wanted to broaden your horizons more. Yeah, I mean, I love Brian, and I'll, I'll ever be grateful to him for all the opportunities he gave me and how much he taught me. And he gave me a lot of uh, freedom, and he encouraged me, and he empowered me. And um, really, you know, he was my initial mentor. But um, I wanted to work on different kinds of films. And as grateful as I am to Brian, I, I you know, I had wanted to work with other directors. And, of course the first opportunity I had to work with anyone else was Star Wars. Right. <laughs> known, as, known as A New Hope. So uh, I had seen production stills from the shoot, and I was extremely excited about it. So, uh, And then, of course, after the picture came out, the, the whole new raft of possibilities opened up for me. So, um, you know, I suppose I could have, you know, in another world, in an alternate universe, I could have just cut all of Brian's movies for the rest of my life. And um, there are many editors who do uh, hook up with a director and cut only for them. And um, I call those, you know, successful marriages. And huh. I like to, you know, my career is more like sleeping around. I've worked with all, <laughs> these, all these different directors and Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's horrible, you know. But uh, the director-editor relationship is very uh, close and intimate. And um, when it works, it's great. When it doesn't work, it's horrible. It's bone on bone, you know. There's only yeah. you and it's only the two of you in the room. And you know, if it's not working, it's just terrible. So <laughs> I've had that experience as well. Um, but, you know, I've always, you know, I, I, there are a number of directors with whom I still have a relationship. I, you know, John Hughes, unfortunately, passed away at a young age. Yeah. But um, I still talk to uh, uh, Mr. De Palma and George Lucas occasionally and, and uh, Jonathan Lynn, whom I worked with, has become a friend, and Taylor Hackford and uh, Duncan yeah. Jones, you know, so... These people, once you have a good working relationship with someone that that doesn't, you know, that relationship doesn't go away uh, entirely. It's obviously I don't we don't see each other every day, but uh, <laughs> there's a lasting afterglow, you know. Of course, and you can see the loyalty. There's that there's that great part in the book where I believe a studio, I, I think the Palma was going to France or something, and you know there's no Naples. cell phones. Naples, yeah. correct. Yeah. And, you know, the studio comes to you and says, we need the cut or we need to see something. And you're like, yeah. nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had said to me specifically, I'm going to the Naples Film Festival, the show Obsession. While I'm gone, don't show the picture to anyone. I said, fine. Right. And I had gotten in trouble on an earlier film when I was still learning the ropes, when I had shown uh, a scene. Uh, Steven Spielberg came to the editing room. Brian wasn't there. And I showed him a little bit of the of the movie and Brian was furious. Uh, yeah. Understandably, I didn't know any better, but I'd learned my lesson. So, you know, on Carrie, the producer called up and he said, uh, send the print over to, you know, head of sales over at UA. And I said, I can't do that. What do you mean? 
Well, Brian told me not to show the picture to anyone while he was gone. He says, I'm the producer of the film. You send that print over now. Right. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do that. He said, if you don't do that, you're fired. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I tried to reach Brian. And in those days, communications weren't as efficient as they are today. But I finally, after a few hours, tracked him down in Naples. He had had an interesting experience in Naples. The Naples Film Festival only had one projector. So they had to stop after every reel and thread up the next reel. <laughs> which, <laughs> wow. Which kind of kills the pace of a film. You know? yeah, it but, does. Uh, but anyway, I finally reached Brian and I told him what happened. He says, all right, don't worry about it. So uh, I said, what should I do? He said, go home. They fired you. You go home. Right. So, uh, so I went home and the next, that evening or something, he called and he said, Come in tomorrow, you've been rehired. I said, okay. You have to have the the trust of the director, and you have to protect their back, and you have to form a sort of united front against all the other uh, forces that are brought to bear, you know. Of course. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because as much of a film uh, nerd, I guess, for lack of a better word, than I am, I've never really given editing a lot of, thought in terms of like when I see it I know it I like it but I've never really thought about the process per se and perhaps I'm wrong about this but it seems to me I have this visual at least of you in an editing bay and the director over your shoulder and that's it dark room cathedral almost how close am I well it depends it depends you know a lot of the time I'm working alone the director's participation um, comes later. They're busy shooting the movie when I'm putting it together. So, uh, and it also depends on the personality of the director. You know, I, I, I liken the process to driving a fine car. You know, some people like to take the wheel themselves, and others like to be chauffeured around. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, it. These relationships vary as much as people vary. That makes sense. I guess it is not one size fits all. Um, there's another quote that I really want to pull out. It's I'm just, again, what, what really fascinates me, and this is kind of the part of this whole podcast, is this idea of storytelling and uh, what the birthing of that process looks like and the, the inspiration behind it. There's this really interesting quote that you say. You say, I'm not only a storyteller, which editors often profess to be, I must also be a showman. Can you explain that? bit more yeah you have to you know there's an element of showmanship in what we do so that it's not just uh laying out the blocks of the story but you do it in a way that uh excites the or you know amuses or uh brings something extra to the storytelling that uh you try to deliver it in the in a way that's that's a it's a performance in a sense um, the story is written in the script. So in a sense, it's how you tell the story that's written through the material that's supplied to you by the crew, the director and the crew. And um, there are different ways of approaching every scene. Um, this is a sort of a cliche that editors always say that you take, you know, 10 editors and give them the same dailies, you get 10 different versions. And it's true. Yeah. 
but I, I, you know, people say it's the old time editors that I met uh, coming up would say editing should be invisible and and you know I thought well no I mean there are times when editing should be visible you know and it's sure. it's not necessarily bad to take take the lead you know no not always and not always melt into the background. No, and a great example of that is the prom scene in Carrie. Yeah, I, well, that was that was by you know that was <laughs> that was uh, extraordinarily ambitious uh, scene that Brian had dreamed up. Yeah, I mean that's the whole story in itself. I go into great detail about that in the book. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely why I brought it up. I never really. I didn't. I didn't understand. I mean, it's interesting too because, again, as a viewer, I saw Carrie, and I uh, and, and there were so many great parts in that movie that I look back on now after reading your book, like the tumbling knife that goes into Piper Laurie. Yeah, and you call that out in your book, and I thought that was so interesting because, again, these are little things in my that I didn't quite catch. I mean, I caught them obviously, but I didn't understand the choices that were made to get to that point. Yeah, well, they did the flying uh, kitchen utensils by hanging them through, uh, from a monofilament. They stretched the monofilament across the set, and then they yeah. had a slingshot uh, with the utensil, whatever it was, a spatula, a knife, a fork, or whatever, you know, potato peeler. I forget what the various things were. They would shoot them across, and the camera would pan with them, and I'd use, you know, just a little bit of the middle of the shot where it's just flying with, you know, flying through the air and then each instrument implement that they used they would do one just flying straight and they would do one where it was tumbling so i had you know maybe five or six different implements flying straight and tumbling and i saved the tumbling only for the last one so that you know it would add a little pizzazz to to put a button on the piece of business that we were doing you know this is yeah something i picked up from beethoven you know, Beethoven would set up an expectation by repeating something, and when he got to the last iteration, he would change it. You know, so you build an expectation, and then you foil it in some way, and it creates a, you know, either a laugh or a pleasing reaction in the in the audience. Humor is connected to surprise, so um, you know these are techniques that extend across. Uh, film and music as well. But I did that repeatedly, like in Ferris, when they're singing um, Twist and Shout, I cut to the audience, the crowd in, in the street, singing along with the ah, yes. ah, ah, and building up yes. to that climax in the middle. Uh, I had very, cuts of various people singing with their mouths open. And the last cut I used, it was a shot of a little boy on his father's shoulders, he must yep. have been about three or four years old, and he had his hands clamped over his ears. <laughs> and nobody, <laughs> That's right. Nobody told him to do that. He just, you know, it was just loud that day. And uh, I saw that, and I thought, oh, that's got to be the button, you know. So you repeat these shots of people singing, and then the last shot is this, you change, you know, you build an expectation, and then you change it at the very end. Very, very Ludwig. Very, right. very... Very Beethovenesque, Beethovenesque. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, what are, you're you're right, and it's it's interesting too because I do remember that very vividly 
So all the mouths open, the ah, and then the kid. But you referred to that just now as a button. Can you explain yeah. that? Well, you know, it's the uh, the rim shot at the end of a joke. You know, you right. you tell a you give a punchline and then bada bing. You know, that's just the cliche of uh, right. how you how you how you button a a, a moment in, in within the larger context. You tie it up. So and the other thing about that shot that was wonderful was because the idea at that moment was to suggest how loud the crowd had become. And when we mixed it, we, you know, in those days, today you can mix, you can, you can play anything at any volume. But in those days, there were technical uh, limitations on how loud you could get because the sound was on an optical track on the film. Oh. It couldn't exceed certain limits. Uh, you had to play within certain limits. So, as I was saying before, when it says, you know, when you want to get louder, when you, you know, uh, you have to start soft in order to get loud. You right. Know? So right. that was the trick with the mix. We had to start at a certain level so that that moment when the kid has his hands over his ears was the maximum volume that we could get onto the optical track. So that was our goal at that, you know, for the whole scene, you had to design it around that particular moment. So that was the loudest moment. Right. And that kind of brings sort of to another point, which is that you, you talk about enhancing crescendo. the actor. Crescendo. Crescendo. Right. That's the word. Right. You actually talk about um, enhancing the artist's performance or, or well, maybe enhancing is the right word for your editing. Is that close? Yeah. You try to piece together all the best bits of the artist's performance. You know, it may be from uh, many different takes, but, you know, you use the best moments of each portion of the scene and then you get sort of an idealized version of something they never actually did all at once, but they did do each part and then you raise the whole thing up to a new level, you know. And then, of course, the actors don't know that you've done that. Maybe some of them do. But they'll look at the scene and say, yeah, I did that, you know. Right. Right. Um, but it's all, it's all part of the process. Um, of course, I do want to talk about uh, Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back world. You'd mentioned that you'd seen some of the production stills uh, from Lucas, and it talks about this in the book. Yeah. Um, can you kind of walk me through that process? Because, you know, when you're cutting this thing, I don't, and it seems to me at least, like no one really knew what this was going to do and how much of an impact, obviously, it was going to have. Well, no. I mean, how could you? I mean, you know, right. the, the picture has had such an impact on the culture, and not only the American culture, but uh, worldwide culture, that uh, it's inexplicable. I mean, I was watching uh, the Olympics the other day, and uh, they had some Asian, I think it was Japanese or Chinese skater, skating to John Williams' music from Empire Strikes Back, you know, so... Yeah. Uh, when you're working on the first film, there's no way to know that 50 years later, you know, 40 years later, it's going to have, uh, you know, it'll be recognized in every country in the world, practically. So uh, there's no way to anticipate that. We, we sure. were just trying to make the best movie possible, which is all, you know, we ever do on any picture that we work on. So I had heard about the picture, and, and um, I was unavailable for it because I was cutting Carrie at the time. And right. George, uh, the principal photography on the film was taking place while we were in post-production on Carrie. In fact, I think the production schedules might have overlapped. But anyway, um, 
he hired an English editor um, to cut the picture, and they were sh- they were shooting the interiors in London, and he was unhappy right. with the cut, and uh, came back through New York. Well, you asked about the production still. So while he was in uh, London, and I was working on Carrie, uh, a mutual friend of ours named Jay Cox, who's a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, had visited there and had, they had given him a book of stills from the production and I had had dinner at their house and he showed me this book of stills and there were shots of 3PO and R2 and uh, the Wookiee and uh, Stormtroopers and the Sandcrawler and uh, these images were, you know, seeing them for the first time like that, it was just so powerful uh, mm-hmm. and exciting um, I went home that night and I said to uh, my wife, I said, boy, I wish I could have worked on that movie. What a great looking movie, you know. So then when they finished uh, shooting and George was unhappy with the cut that the English editor had delivered, he he let the, the man go and came back to the uh, United States through New York. He was heading to California to cut the picture. <laughs> and while he was, he and Marsha, his wife, who was an editor, um, came through town. We showed them a cut of Carrie, and they uh, they really liked it. They didn't really have any notes. They thought, "Oh, it's great," you know. And then about two weeks later, I got a phone call from Marsha saying, "Can you come help out on Star Wars?" So uh, that's how it happened. <laughs> and it's a pacing on that film that I really like. Now that I think about it, and I thought about this for a while. But the pacing is fantastic, and specifically with the editing, because at least, again, this is just from as a viewer point, clearly, but by the end, you've got the TIE Fighters, and you've got the Death Star, and you've got all this cutting and cutting and cutting, but it flows so well, but it's so quick, and it really gave the spirit of this new world of, um, uh, you know, bombings. And if I'm not mistaken, come to think of it, I do think that a lot of the cutting was inspired or at least tried to uh, emanate the spirit of uh, World War II and going through the trenches. And am I wrong about that? Maybe. Well, the the uh, the end battle was a, yeah. an enormous project in itself. And Marsha was assigned that task while uh, Richard Chu, the other editor on the film, and I were recutting the film, the body of the film. Marsha was assembling... Uh, was building the the end battle and the elements she had to work with were uh, shots of the cock, uh, cockpits and the pilots and uh, the various pilots in their wooden two by four cockpits um, <laughs> with yeah. blue screens behind them and then you had Princess Leia and 3PO in the control room with the other rebel officers and so forth. And sure. they had nothing for the exteriors because they hadn't been shot yet. So what Marsha did was to use uh, existing archival uh, World War II aerial footage of actual fighters and bombers in midair to uh, act as placeholders for the exterior shots of the ships that would eventually be filmed. Hmm. So, um, there, you know... There is a, uh, you know, everything an artist does is standing on what's been done before. So I'm sure there are, you know, 
Star Wars has been studied to death, and I'm sure there are whole books on uh, what the influences on George were. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure, you know, World War II was clearly uh, on his mind. Uh, right. Although the exterior shots that uh, Marsha used had nothing to do with what the eventual shot would look like. But they were just, huh. all you knew is when you cut to a, a World War II shot, you knew you were on an exterior of a ship, and then you'd cut to a cockpit, and you, you know, it, it was it was funny. It was like it was like uh, eventually, once the sequence was cut, and we turned it over to ILM, and they started delivering shots and filling in the background and putting a star field behind a uh, pilot in a cockpit, or putting in the, the trench behind you know Luke as he's flying down the trench. Uh, sure. As these shots came in. We had, you know, hundreds of shots in the sequence, and uh, they would gradually, you know, over the weeks that they delivered these shots to me, uh, the the sequence would sort of come to life. All of a sudden, there's stars in the background instead of blue screen, and all of a sudden, there's, you know, motion where there was just it was just static. And if you look at the whole sequence, it was like watching uh, a black and white. Uh, print develop in the developer you sort of sort of it starts blank and then it it fills in and becomes a picture and it was sort of like that with the whole sequence there it was you know relatively static and then as the shots came in it sort of came to life when when all the um, visual effects shots were were cut in one by one there's one thing also that i thought was interesting was um you kind of went back to De palma for a blowout and yeah uh, the thing I like about Blowout, I just I just thought about this honestly, because I saw that movie a, a while ago, and I really, really loved it. And the thing that's interesting to me is that, and again, viewer perspective could be wrong, but I guess it's my perspective anyway. But, um, you know, Travolta's character was a photographer, but essentially an editor, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he's the sound man. He's the sound man, correct. But he's, sound editor, he's piecing together. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Not the photographer. He was piecing together the audio. You're right. Right. Um, and I thought that was interesting, given the fact that you're an editor and what that was. That is that kind of what interested you also in the picture, or was it just the well, I was, too? I was Brian's guy, you know, and uh, you know we had this solid relationship, and the idea for Blowout had come from uh, Brian was intrigued by. Uh, our sound editor, a guy named Dan Sable, who we had used on Sisters and Phantom, I believe. can't recall. But anyway, um, Dan had supplied sound effects, and uh, Brian said to him, where'd you, where'd you get that? He says, well, I go out with a microphone and I record stuff. And this notion of a guy going out with a microphone and recording things appealed to Brian. So that's, that was the germ of the idea. And then, right. you know, and then it was similar to blow up, which is, you know, Antonioni's film about sure. a photographer who accidentally photographs a crime. Uh, and this one, it's Travolta who accidentally records a crime. And if I'm not mistaken, also you taught him how to use a movieola. Yeah, I had to give him, I had to give him lessons so that when he was handling the uh, equipment, he looked like he knew what he was doing. Right. Those Wuviola, my goodness. You learned obviously on that. I mean, that's yeah, tools in the trade. Workhorse for decades. 
which now leads me to my next question, and that is, how did how did the digital revolution affect your work, or did it? Is it the same process? Is it not? I mean, obviously, it's digital. It's not physical. Do you like it? Do you miss it? Well, you know, editing is a mental process. It's not a technical process. So, thank goodness, because I would have been in a lot of trouble if it had been a technical thing. Uh, but you know, I like to compare, uh, that change to, you know, uh, you know, to writing, for instance, some people like to write longhand and others like to work on a word processor or, uh, you know, on a computer. It doesn't affect the writing per se. You're still writing the same words, whether you you know, so so in a sense, the cut is the same. With, no matter what the tools are, the right. writing is not about the pen. You know, and yeah. editing is not about the tools you use. That said, uh, the computer is a fantastic tool for editing because uh, it took a lot of the physical tedium out. Uh, in order to make changes on film, you had to open up a splice and remake a splice, you know, and define mm-hmm. the missing material. And so all those, you know, in, in effect, when I first saw the, the Lightworks, which was the first system I worked on, I thought, wow, this, you know, this is like an automatic splicing machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, fir- the second thought I th- was, I'm going to be able to go really fast on this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, that was true because... On film, I was usually able to cut about two minutes a day or ten minutes a week on average. But with the uh, computer, I was able to do 15, 20, sometimes 30 or 40 minutes a week, depending on you know the material that I had. So it really increased my productivity in terms of how much I could I could handle. And uh, but you know uh, everything cuts both ways. You know there are tremendous downsides to it as well. Um, the physical limits that film imposed on mm-hmm. directors uh, were annihilated. So then, the, now there was no limit to how much they could shoot because there was no cost involved. Before, you had to buy film for the camera, and then you had to develop it, and you had to make a print, and you had to develop the print, and all those steps cost a lot of money at the lab, and the studios would limit directors to say, you can print three takes of any given setup. You know, you can shoot. You know, you might shoot 15, but you can only print three because um, because of the cost involved. Well, mm-hmm. with digital, there is no cost. You know, so mm-hmm. I hear. Uh, thank God, I'm out of the business now. But I hear um, on Top Gun, the new Top Gun, for instance, they had you know 27 hours of dailies for one day. Yes. They, had, they had so many different cameras going at the same time. So, uh, how do you deal with that? that mass of film. I mean, it, um, so anyway, it creates its own problems. It's a little bit like the, the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, <laughs> you're right. And in fact, you know, coming from a musician standpoint, yeah. it, it's interesting that you say that because it was the same way for me. Um, when I was younger, I was cutting on or recording on tape, right? You know, you get your Ampex and you just do, do it that way and you're right. burning tape and tape costs money and then suddenly the digital thing came around and it was the same concept, endless possibilities in terms of adding things and taking things away. And 
it now begs the question that I really love to ask a lot of creative people. It's kind of like the almost er question of this entire thing is, um, when do you know you're done? Right. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, with film, there's, you know, uh, in the kind of work that I've been doing my whole life, there are, you know, commercial interests involved that uh, impose limits in terms of time. You're not given mm-hmm. endless amounts of time. So um, people have said, no film is ever finished. It's only just taken away from you. Right. You know, so, um, you know, some people, some directors have very great difficulty making choices. So if they were left to their own devices, the picture might never come out because they'd be, you know, tweaking right. it forever. Yep. Um so it's a little bit different when you're a painter or a composer, you know, that that discipline is is not imposed from outside. You have to generate it yourself. My father was a painter and he used to confess that that he uh he overworked some pictures, you know, he 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 admits he he painted too he, he should have stopped sooner, you know. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful shot I love of Brian Wilson in the studio when they were doing pet sounds. And it's him at the um, recording uh, studio or at, at the recording board. And, you know, they had eight tracks. <laughs> you yeah. know, they were lucky. You know, Beatles did four tracks and they just looped them. But yeah. it's that idea. Yeah. And the thing I love about that question is I ask it all the time to creatives and I get different answers, obviously. Um, my favorite one, side note, was Neil Young. When I asked him this one, he goes, when I'm done. <laughs> okay, that, that makes sense. Um but it's just so fascinating to me because it's ultimately that question is about when do you let go? Yeah. Well, again, that varies from, from person to person. But like I say, in the kind of commercial work that I was involved in, there are other you know forces at work of course. beyond what, you, what you're happy with, you know. Right. When the check clears. This is what I've also heard, too, when you know you're done. Um, a couple of other things I did want to kind of point out from the book is that you, you talk about your time kind of in the studio uh, exec world. And I, I kind of wanted to just kind of see where that went for you. I mean, it's in the book, but I want to bring it out. Well, I had ambitions to direct for a while. You know, I, uh, you work as an editor and you, you start thinking, uh, everybody wants to be the boss. That's understandable. And uh, I had those ambitions. And I made a deal with Joe Roth, um, who was head of 20th Century Fox, that when we found something that was mutually agreeable, I would get my shot. So uh, while we were looking for uh, something for me to, to direct, he he hired me as a sort of uh, uh, fireman or you know uh, emergency. I don't know what you call it, but you know, I, fireman. Yeah. If if there was a project that needed fresh eyes or, you know, some help, I would work on that. And that was the idea. And it was a job that was sort of nebulous, uh, but it afforded me some employment while we were looking for the right project for me to do. What was the first movie you saw and why did it inspire you or why do you remember it or what was the... Oh, yeah. Um, the first movie I saw, as I, I believe, was a picture called uh, frogmen and I was about I think I must have been about six years old or so 
And I was very disappointed uh, because it turned out to be about uh, underwater swimming, you know, uh, scuba divers, uh, Navy, Navy scuba divers. And I thought I was expecting to see frogmen, you know, <laughs> and expecting to see frogs. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I got to check that out. What year was that? 51 or something like that. And uh, <laughs> I think that was, I don't, I don't remember anything about it except being disappointed that it was, it was not, not actual frogmen. <laughs> frogmen, but, I uh, love it. We lived, uh, when I was a kid, we lived in Paris for several years. And uh, I would go to movies in Paris, uh, to American movies in Paris. It was sort of my connection to, uh, you know, uh, to the States. That was how I stayed connected to, uh, you know, my home country. And uh, I remember seeing Scaramouche. And uh, I saw King Solomon's Mines. And I saw an American in Paris. Wow. I guess there must have been another oh, oh, uh, Ivanhoe uh, were some of the pictures I saw over there that I remember. Wow. I'm sure I saw more than that. And I think I also saw the uh, the greatest show on earth was a circus circus movie. Sure. Yeah. Or Trapeze yeah. with Gina Lilla Brigida, I believe. Oh, the famous, right? Yes, I forgot about that. So. I was going to Hollywood movies while I was living in Paris. <laughs> there are big movie uh, fans over there. Yeah, you mentioned that, actually. Um, in fact, uh, in our correspondence earlier, you this, as I had mentioned, one of my favorite movies is Phantom of the Paradise. And you talked yeah. about how that film had played, what, seven months, I think you said? Ten years. Ten, ten years. years. It played for ten years in the same theater. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're big Palmer Palma fans over there. My I, book has been translated into French, and it's going to be published there later this year. Um, I'm not sure yet. They've mentioned June or maybe in the fall. I'm not quite clear on the timing yet, but there is going to be a French translation of my book. That is fantastic. Look, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Um, again, uh, the book is absolutely fantastic great great read and uh it is w- just wonderful it's mr paul hirsch yeah it's available on amazon and audible yep. and uh, audible it's on audible it's not me reading but i hear the guy is pretty good yeah it's called yeah. a long time ago in a cutting room far far away and that's it um, i cannot thank you enough this has been great you're welcome okay bye-bye <laughs>